See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I'll never forget the first whitewater rafting trip taken by the men of Calvary Chapel. It sure didn't go according to plan. We camped out overnight, we ate our breakfast, and then we all went down to the river to scout out the rapids. I was angling for a closer look when I leaped from the rock I was standing on to the ledge down below me. Well, I never saw my foot land on that ledge. I slipped, and I fell about four feet back first into that ice-cold river. I smacked my back on a rock that was just under the surface of the water. If I'd hit my head, it would have knocked me unconscious. I might have drowned. Instead, I landed on my side. I'll never forget emerging out of that freezing water, gasping for breath. I mean, the blow had taken the wind right out of me. And wow, was it painful. It hurt to breathe. The guys drove me to Rayburn County Hospital to get x-rayed. I had broken ribs and a very bruised ego. That next Sunday, the men of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain had customized a t-shirt just for me. And for the next few months, I had a new nickname. Pastor Sandy was Blunder River. <clears throat> but it all reminded me to watch your step. In fact, that's the title of this morning's message, Watch Your Step. Remember, the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is about how we see ourselves. And in light of that, chapters 4 through 6 is how we should live our lives. In Christ, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Ours is a rags-to-riches story. We've gone from dead in sin to alive with Christ. We have access to God. We are part of a third race. It's all a result of God's grace. And now that we're somebody special, we're Christians, it's time we lived like it. Ephesians 4 verse 1 tells us, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And if we're going to walk in a worthy manner, it requires us to watch our step. Hey, there's dangers lurking along life's path. Temptation stalks us. It lurks around every corner. Life is strewn with landmines and with booby traps. As Christians, our rock is Jesus. But as I learned on the river that day, if you're not careful, you can slip off the rock. I heard a confession years ago that's always stuck with me. It was in the wake of the scandal that brought down Jim Baker and the PTL ministry. Baker had seduced his secretary, Jessica Hahn, into adultery. And in referencing his sin, Baker was honest. He made this comment, It's amazing how 15 minutes can ruin your life. 
I'll never forget that. My mom said the same thing, but in a different way. She would tell us, it takes a whole life to build a reputation, but only a few short moments to tear one down. And this is why you and I need to watch our step. In Ephesians 5, Paul has encouraged us to walk in love, to walk as children of light. And now he teaches us to walk in wisdom. If we're going to walk in victory over sin and temptation, we have to watch our step. And Paul tells us how here in verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This word translated circumspectly, it means to walk gingerly. To be careful how and where you plant your feet. Several weeks ago now, I heard a bump in the night. And it's always the man's job to check on the noises. And so I set off on a search and destroy mission. The house was dark and just in case there was an intruder, I didn't want to turn on the lights. I'd give away the element of surprise. I had to drop. The grandkids had been over earlier that day. And they had taken these hard plastic animals that Kathy had bought them to, bought to play, for them to play with. And they had scattered those animals all over the house. And so when I stepped on the scaly dinosaur, trust me, it hurt. It stung. It reminded me of all those Legos I used to step on when my kids were toddlers. Have you ever stepped on a Lego? Those boys hurt. I'm telling you, if I had a dime for every Lego I've stepped on, I'd be a rich man. But this illustrates how that as Christians, we need to live our lives, that we should walk. Hey, don't just stomp through life without giving any thought to where you're stepping. Don't amble or stroll aimlessly. This is how you slip up. As Christians, we need to live our lives deliberately. We need to step carefully. Do you think about the choices that you make? Do you think them through ahead of time? Do you pay attention to their consequences? Do you have a plan for your life? Do you stick with that plan? Do you strategize over how you'll spend your time and your resources? See, Satan loves to pepper our path with banana peels. In fact, when he targets you for a takedown, the enemy will position that banana peel where it's least expected. He doesn't just tempt us. He tries to distract us and get us to go offline, outside God's will. He wants, us to, wants to knock us off track. And this is why you and I need to stay alert. This Greek word translated walk, it means to walk in a straight line. Never forget the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And this is also true spiritually. I like to put it this way. You never go wrong doing right. Guys, it's sin that complicates. It's sin that throws a wrench into the gears of life. Life was made to live God's way. Thus, when we buck his will, situations and relationships get more difficult. One lie leads to another lie, which leads to still another lie. And before long, our whole life is nothing but layers of deception that we're trying to weasel out from under. Proverbs 13 verse 15 says it best. The way of the unfaithful is hard. If you want to do things your own way and but God's will, you're opting for a harder path. Hey, let me say, God's will isn't always easy, but it is simple. 
It's like driving a car. Stay between the white lines and you're usually fine. It's when you steer off-road that it seldom ends well. And the same is true in life. The terrain gets rough and confusing outside of God's will. And thus Paul says, it's a fool who ignores how he walks, whereas the wise man will walk circumspectly. Now I want to pause just a moment to speak specifically to a person here this morning. And if it's you, you'll know in just a few moments that it's you. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. For you, you're in a place where you need to make a decision. You need to make a decision in the next few days. We're doing what's right is going to have grave short-term consequences for you. And quite frankly, you're afraid of the outcome. You know that if you do the right thing, you're going to upset a few people. You might lose your job. You might create friction in your family. Well, here's my word. Here's God's word to you today. You need to believe you never go wrong doing right. You need to believe that. God may not spare you all the fallout, but I promise you he'll see you through. If you do the right thing, if you walk wisely in the end, God will honor your obedience. Well, it's important we walk circumspectly. For we should be redeeming the time because the days are evil. You know, one of the reasons we walk foolishly is that we're too busy to stop and think about where we are and what we're doing. Time flies. Our heads spin. We get hurried. Life becomes a blur. And then one day the train stops and it lets us off. And we realize we've missed our destination by 100 miles. The other day I was made it to the airport just in time for my flight. The plane was already boarding, in fact. And I was standing in line with the other passengers when all of a sudden I had the strange sensation that I might be boarding the wrong plane. You ever had that feeling? This week I, I read a CNN report of an 80-year-old lady who bought a ticket on Delta from Atlanta to Dulles. Somehow she got on the wrong plane and landed in Charlotte. Someone blogged in the comment, Delta must stand for delivering elderly ladies to anywhere. <laughs> My point, though, is it can happen. I mean, think about it. You spend money on a plane ticket. You travel for hours, and then you end up in a place you never wanted to be. And this can happen in life. How many people have wasted time and money and effort to end up in a place in life that they never intended? This is why we need to be careful how we walk and redeem the time. The idea behind the phrase is to take advantage of opportunities to make your time count. I mean, don't just let life come to you. Embrace every hour, every minute. Live in the moment. Recruit time as a servant to help you achieve the goals that God has for you. You see, the guy who just stumbles one day off life's treadmill with a broken marriage and estranged kids, and gobs of debt, isn't just a fellow who failed to walk wisely. He also floundered at managing his time. He allowed opportunities to slip away. Moments where he could have made a memory were lost or stolen. Here's a man that no doubt postponed the important for the convenient. This person failed to carpe diem, to seize the day. And Paul is encouraging us not to be that person. 
It was Benjamin Franklin who once said, Dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. Hey, don't think that you can build a life worth living with just money or busyness. It's not what you do or the money you spent that'll be remembered. It's the time invested. It's the experiences shared that'll be treasured. I was watching TV this past week with my wife, Kathy, and it was the grandma episode of the Food Channel show Chopped. I didn't know there was a grandma episode. The grandma who won the show, she said she planned to use her prize money to gather her large family together in one location for a fun vacation just to make some memories. I was impressed. This grandma understood the stuff life is made of. Hey, we redeem the time when we take advantage of the opportunities God gives us to share our faith and to serve our Lord and to love the people around us. Paul says the days are evil. That means that there's too little good and godly going on in our world. Our day is characterized by evil. And that's all the more reason why we shouldn't let a single opportunity to do good slip away. Someone once said, time flies. But it's up to you to be the pilot. Make sure your life lands in a good spot. And then verse 17 tells us, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, here's the ultimate test of where to step and how to spend time. Is it the will of God? I mean, I'll walk wisely. I'll redeem my time only to the degree that I'm able to discern God's will. And yet, for many believers, this is one of the most ambiguous, one of the most confusing areas of Christian discipleship. We pray and we pray, but how do we really know God's will? Reminds me of the farmer who was out in his field one day. He noticed a cloud formation overhead. And the clouds had kind of formed into the shape of a P and a C. He took it as a sign from God. P-C. That means preach Christ. So he sold his farm. Went to Bible college, and upon graduation, he took his first church. He preached his sermon that morning. He put his heart into it. But I got to tell you, man, it was awful. It was boring with a capital B. After the sermon, the pastor was telling someone about his call into the ministry. The man replied, Pastor, are you sure God meant preach Christ and not plant corn? <laughs> hey, granted, it's possible to miss out on the will of God. But I'm convinced finding God's will is not as hard as we make it out to be. God wants us to know his will more than we do. And he has a million ways of conveying it. You know, the term here, understand, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's a term that, that means putting together contradictory thoughts. It implies a mental process of reasoning through something rather than just some mystical revelation. Hey, don't misunderstand. I believe in divine communication, that God can speak to us in dreams and words of knowledge and prophetic utterances. But it seems to me these communiques are the exception, not the rule. It's not God's first line of communication. One time I was browsing through a Christian bookstore when I noticed a fella. He had his eyes closed and he was running his hands across the shelves along the spines of the books. I asked him what he was doing. I thought I might know. He said it was his way of letting God show him what book to read. Implied was that he had to turn off his mind 
stop his normal thinking and depend on some mystical impulse coming from the book, you know, to direct his, his involvement. I disagreed with this whole approach to finding God's will. God gave us a brain. Surely he wants to put it to good use. It makes sense to me that God would work through the hardware he created to speak to us. I'm sure in God's view, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I believe divine guidance and supernatural insight does come, but often it comes to us in the commonplace and in natural ways. God puts a thought in our head that rings true. A friend speaks to us in a loving way. We recognize it as God's will. We read something that resonates in our heart. Hey, if you're listening, God has a thousand ways to speak his will. And the very best way to decipher the will of God is by understanding the word of God. Hey, we look to God to write in the sky, but listen, he has written in this book. It was Mark Twain who once said, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. <laughs> in other words, Twain's problem wasn't knowing the will of God, but doing it. There is enough in the Bible that I know is God's will for me. And I believe it's only when I do what I know to be God's will that I'm ready for him to reveal the next step. And here's one thing that I know is God's will for every believer in this room this morning. Verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, if you're driving home this afternoon and you begin to drive erratically, and the policeman pulls you over, guess how he'll determine if you're under the influence of alcohol? He checks how you walk. Can you walk in a straight line? He watches your step. And likewise, we need to watch our step. See, it's one thing to stand in the church and say we love God. But on the road, in the field, God's sobriety test has nothing to do with words. It's all about how we walk. And as wine influences your walk, so will the Holy Spirit. Hey, distilled spirits prohibit you from walking in a straight line, whereas the Holy Spirit enables you to walk in a straight line. Understand, verse 18 here tells us that drunkenness is dissipation. The term literally means wasteful. Hey, drinking to excess is many things. It's foolish, it's sinful, it's harmful, but mainly it's just wasteful. You know, the Bible is full of verses that warn us about alcohol. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. That's Proverbs 23. Drunkenness is a waste. And realize, Proverbs 23 isn't just speaking of the fall-down, sloppy head in the toilet drunk. This is a warning to a sophisticated taster, a wine connoisseur. He isn't a guzzler, at least at first. He appreciates the swirl of the wine, its smooth taste, its sparkle in the cup. And yet in the end, he acknowledges that it bites and it mocks 
Can he find a more useful, less dangerous pastime? Hey, drunkenness is a waste. It's a waste of money. While the joy of the Spirit is free. It's a waste of health. Think liver disease. It's a waste of time. How can it be time well spent when you can't remember what you did the next day? Is this the best use of the short span we call life? Drunkenness is wasteful, whereas the filling of the Holy Spirit is God's richest and fullest and highest blessing. Now, I've heard some Christians take this passage in Ephesians 5 as if Paul were making a comparison. As if being filled with God the Holy Spirit and being stone-called drunk are similar experiences. Not hardly. Paul's words are a contrast, not a comparison. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness and holiness are poles apart. Realize, alcohol is a depressant, not a stimulant. It deadens and mutes certain centers in the brain. A drunk acts giddy and loses his or her inhibitions because the alcohol depresses their normal defense mechanisms. They lose their balance or their thinking becomes foggy. Whereas the Holy Spirit's influence is a stimulant. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is for me to be the best that I can be. I grow stronger. I think clearer. I act better under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enhances my capabilities. My balance improves. My thinking becomes sharper. Paul tells us we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's true that the Bible allows for moderate use of alcohol. If you don't stumble or cause your brother to stumble, a Christian can drink, just don't get drunk. But again, the opposite is true of the Holy Spirit. For God's desire when it comes to the Holy Spirit is for us to be intoxicated. Intoxication, not moderation. No little doses here. No shot glasses when it comes to the Holy Spirit. God wants His Spirit to fill us, to get into the bloodstream, to get carried into every part of our lives. The influence of the Holy Spirit should permeate everything that we are, our identity, our longings, our thoughts, our actions. The Holy Spirit resides or dwells in all believers, but not all Christians allow him to have the run of the house. Paul tells us that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's where the Greek grammar is a huge help to us. This verb, be filled, it's in the continuous tense. This is not just a one-time experience he's talking about. It's a repeatable event. It's an ongoing dynamic. We're filled over and over and over again. The verb is also passive, which means we don't make this happen. We ask God. We desire it. We're open to it. But we can't manufacture it ourselves. Rather than the result of some formula we follow or a reward for some good deed, the Spirit's filling in our life is a gift of God's grace. It's God's work in our hearts. We receive it thankfully. And then third, this phrase be filled is in the imperative, which means this is not a suggestion. This is not optional. There's nothing subtle here. He's telling us, don't you live without being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, if we pulled your life over this morning and watched you walk, would we see that you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Hey, when a person is full of wine, they lose control of their faculties. 
their speech, their mobility, their clarity. Whereas one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. God's Spirit will tame the fiery temper and put a lid on loose lips and focus wandering eyes and corral all our stray thoughts. For some of us, what we really need today is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, how every Christian needs to not just have the Holy Spirit, but to be overflowing, to be filled with the, to the brim, to be full of the Holy Spirit. And again, how does this happen? It's not the result of our manipulations or a reward for our righteousness. Understand, it is in God's heart to fill you with the Holy Spirit. He just wants you to ask. In Luke 11, verse 10, Jesus encourages us, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, would you offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, knowing how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In Acts chapter 19, when Paul visited these Ephesians, he asked them if they had ever received the Holy Spirit. Their replies revealing, they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. How can this be? The Holy Spirit is the power source of the Christian life. He's the bread on our table. He's the fuel in our tank. Without him, nothing of eternal value gets accomplished. How can you not have heard of the Holy Spirit? Reminds me, though, of the Rose Bowl parade that was delayed when one of the floats ran out of gas. This float was beautifully decorated, covered with roses, but the float sputtered and kicked and eventually came to a halt. And the problem? It's mechanic forgot to fill it with gas. And here is the irony of all ironies. This float was sponsored by the Standard Oil Company, <laughs> a corporation with vast reserves of petroleum had run out of gas. And this is what had happened to the Ephesians. They had the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know what they had. They could be filled. They could know his power. God was willing to fuel and sustain their efforts. It wasn't a problem with possession. It was a matter of filling. And this is my challenge to us today. If you're a believer in Jesus, I'm not questioning whether you have the Holy Spirit. I believe you do. He dwells in the heart of every Christian. But do you want to be filled? Do you want to feel his power in your life? Do you want to know his fullness? Think of Jesus' disciples after his resurrection. Think of all that this crew had going for them. They had seen his miracles, even his victory over death. They were saved. They had dedicated themselves to God. They had left all to follow Jesus. And they were raring and ready to tell the world. You'd think Jesus would want to seize the momentum at that moment and send his men out immediately. But not so. Instead, he told them to return to Jerusalem and wait. Wait? Wait for what? Weren't they ready to go? Well, I suppose according to today's standards, there's never been a group of men more ready. But Jesus knew that they lacked a missing ingredient, one indispensable. They had yet to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
hey, we too need to be filled with the Spirit. And not just once, but like the Ephesians, we need to be filled again and again, continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And what will it look like when we do get filled by the Holy Spirit? Well, in these next three verses, Paul tells us, you'll hear melody and gratitude and submission. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a song in your heart. He puts a melody within you. Think about this. Have you ever been into have you ever been in a bar that didn't have a jukebox? You ever been in a bar that didn't have a jukebox? And if there wasn't a jukebox, there was a band or a DJ. Why? Because intoxication and singing go hand in hand. Tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. And trust me, every pub in Ireland will be full of singing and making melody. Here's a good question. What does a church and a bar have in common? They both are full of bad singing. <laughs> and here's where both sources of intoxication, wine and the Holy Spirit, produce comparable results. They both create a melody, a musicality, a joy, and a happy song. Hey, even if it's off-key, it's still a joyful noise. But that's where the comparison ends. For the guy who gets sauced, he sings because he's lightheaded. Whereas the spirit-filled man or woman sings because they're lighthearted. Their burden has been lifted. They've let go of their grudge. The fullness of the Spirit has turned their worries into worship, their perplexities into praise. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a song in your heart and there is thanksgiving on your lips. I take the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs Paul mentions not as some kind of hard and fast musical categories, but as the expression of variety found in a merry heart. I believe a spirit-filled life is joy in different keys. And we're speaking songs to one another here. This is what happens in church. Churches where joy is contagious. Gladness is sung and shared from believer to believer. You know, a lot of grumbling goes on in a bar. People tend to drink while they complain about their boss or their spouse or their situation. It's easy to vent once you get a little lubricated. Wine tends to bring out a lot of whining. But being filled with the Holy Spirit causes us to look on the bright side. We see the silver lining in the cloud. A spirit-filled guy or gal is always grateful. As Paul puts it, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit impacts the quality of our relationships with each other. There's a mutual submission one with another. You know, sadly, I've met charismatic Christians who believed in the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it gave, once they, they believed in it, but it gave off in them an air of superiority. They sort of saw themselves as the spiritual haves, and they looked at everybody else as the have-nots. But this is the exact opposite effect the Holy Spirit's filling has on a Christian's life. Hey, rather than a snob, it turns you into a servant. Rather than make you think you're better, the filling of the Spirit reinforces that we're brothers. 
It's important that we understand this word submitting and its role in the Christian life. For over the next two weeks, we're going to see how mutual submission figures into all of our life, into our marriage, our family, and our work. In marriage, for example, there's a definite order. Husbands lead and wives should let them. God gives the husband and wife separate roles. But in those roles, they both have responsibilities that require a mutual submission. Children rank under parents, but then the parent has the reciprocal responsibility to lovingly train their child. In the workplace, employees need to follow their boss's orders, but the boss needs to follow his workers with genuine and compassionate concern for their welfare. Yes, in all of life, even in the church, you find a hierarchy, a a ranking of responsibility. Hebrews 13 verse 17 tells us, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. You should submit to your pastor and your pastor should watch out over you. This mutual submission, this reciprocal responsibility underlies every important relationship in our lives. Submitting to one another in the fear of God is the grease that keeps the social wheels rolling. And when submission dries up, our relationships blow up. This Greek word translated submit, it means to arrange under. It was a military term involving rank. We can see how rank works between a general and a private, but how does this mutual submission play out? Well, think of that general and that private. Just two men without the uniform for a moment. Not as soldiers, but just as people. Each with their own skill set. Put those two men side by side. And they may have equal ability as individuals. And yet when they join the armed services, both men get involved in an enterprise greater than themselves. Now for the good of the whole, in support of the common cause, they're willing now to bring their strength and gifts and smarts into a military order that can accomplish more for their country than they could as individuals. And it is the very same attitude, a submitted attitude, that holds the general to his duties and it also holds the private pledge to his job. Their task will vary, but both men have an allegiance to a common cause. This is their mutual submission. Both men are sub or under the mission. Submission. And this is why men join the military. When they join the military, whether they're enlisted men or whether they're officers, what's the first thing that happens? They get stripped of their individuality. They get a uniform. They came in styling their own clothes, but all of a sudden, they take their clothes off and they get a uniform. They start wearing the same clothes. They're part of something bigger than themselves. And then they get a haircut. And it's not a faux hawk for you and a mullet for you. Everybody gets a crew cut. They look alike. And then they eat the same food. And by the way, they eat at the same time. There's no call-ahead seating in the mess hall. You don't order off the boot camp menu. The idea is that no matter your rank, everyone who wears that uniform is submitted to the mutual mission. The unit is greater than the individual. individual. And this is what we're going to find in marriage. The marriage unit is greater than the individual. 
This is what we're going to find in the home. The home is greater than the individual. And any other attitude goes by the name mutiny. And this needs to be the attitude in the church. For we too are an army, a spiritual army. We've all been recruited to pursue a common mission. To worship Jesus and glorify God and love a lost world. And this is why Paul adds the phrase, in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. We submit not because we fear each other, but we fear God. And he has called us to play a role in relationship to one another. And whatever that role happens to be at that time, we should submit out of our reverence and love for God. And here's what I found. It's so much easier to submit to one another when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. For when we're not, we're worried about ourselves and our own status and our own wants. Our mission is our own needs And yet when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm rejoicing that I'm a child of God. My heart is sloshing over with joy and singing. My needs are being met in Christ. Thus, I'm no longer fixated on myself. And this makes it easier for me to submit to the bigger, to the higher mission. Well, here again is this morning's theme. Watch your step. Don't get careless and be a blunder river. Step gingerly. Be careful where you put those feet. Walk straight. You never go wrong doing right. Seize the day. In a world full of evil, make sure you're taking advantage of every opportunity to do good. Open the word of God to understand the will of God. And then certainly, a big part of God's will for us is that we be continually and graciously filled with the Holy Spirit. So, that our life will sing so that our heart will show gratitude and so that all our ambitions will be submitted to the greater good of the glory of God. And if you're thinking, well, Pastor Sandy, good message this morning, but boy, just a little too late for me. I slipped up big time this week. Then take heart. For God is not about to leave one of his kids with a skinned knee or a broken arm. This morning, the Holy Spirit is here to pick us up and dust us off, to heal that wound, to mend that break. I pray that this morning, you'll open your heart to God and you'll ask Him. You'll really ask Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit.